Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So chapter 3, again, the writer of Hebrews is talking about how Jesus Christ is better. And before, in chapter 1, uh, we talked about the fact that he's the creator, he's better, he's higher than the angels. Uh, and chapter 2 was a kind of a continuation with that. And with chapter 3 now, the writer is going to point out to the Hebrews. Now, these, this is a church that he's writing to. These are Christians. They're Hebrew Christians. Um, he's going to write to them how Moses or Jesus is better than Moses. He's going to do some comparison and some contra uh, contrast Jesus to Moses. And the reason why is because these believers were very tempted to go back into Judaism. They were at a position where maybe we're kind of where we're getting to where it's like, you know, it's it's harder to be a Christian. And and, and it was harder in their day to stand up in a in a in a completely uh, Jewish culture where Judaism was not only the, the faith of so many people, but I mean, it was ingrained in their culture. And so there was a challenge. You really had to stand up for your faith. And the temptation to go back to what's easy, you don't have, you're no longer going against the flow, you're kind of going with the flow, it's a temptation. It was a temptation for them. I think sometimes it'd be a temptation for us as well. And so the writer wants to point out that don't go back. And he's gonna, that's why he's talking about Moses, because Moses is the central figure of Judaism. He's the national hero, and we'll look at that in a little bit later. But let me begin with Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. You'll notice the writer said uh, to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. And that's what I titled the message, Consider Christ Jesus. You know, when, when the writer says that, it's not like, hey, you know, uh, think about Jesus. You know, hey, he's an option. Or, you know, or hey, just kind of check out Jesus. You know, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is very similar to what Jesus said in the Gospels. Jesus at one time in Luke chapter 12 told the people that were gathered, he said, consider the ravens. Now, he's not like, check out the ravens, man. Look at those flying around. The other day, uh, we, uh, I don't know if you've noticed that there's a lot of crows around Rochester again. And, and uh, I, I see the crows and I don't really consider them until the other morning. I thought, I was downstairs and I thought somebody was, like, I thought my neighbor's like building something. I'm hearing this hammering on something. And about a, about a half hour later, I heard Teresa comes out. She goes, those oh, no, she texted me from upstairs. She goes, those crows are banging on the roof. And they, they did that last year. And they're sure, again, they're up there this year. And they're peck, pecking at our, at our shingles. I'm like, man, those guys, and they hard. I mean, it sounded like a hammer. And I'm like, so I, I got the hardest snowball I could find and scared them off. And then it, and then it came back. I did, had to do it three times. And finally, they were gone. But, but, you know, consider the crows. I'm like, okay, now I'm really considering them. <laughs> but that's what Jesus is saying. When he says consider the ravens, not just look at them, but see them and understand, learn from them. He said the same thing about the lilies. Consider the lilies. So see it, but not just see it with your eyes, but understand and learn something. And so that's what the writer is saying here when he says, consider Christ Jesus. Well, what does he want us to understand? 
He wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is the apostle, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's the apostle. What's an apostle? Well, we know the 12 apostles, right, in the Bible. Um, an apostle is someone who was sent. They're an ambassador, like a delegate for someone greater than them. And, uh, and so Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus was sent by the Father. He was an ambassador for the Father. He was a delegate uh, for the Father. And so Jesus Christ is the apostle of our faith. He's also the high priest. Now, you guys probably know what a priest is, what a priest does. Well, a chief priest or a high priest was a chief priest. In other words, he could actually do any duty that the normal priests would do, but the high priest had a special function. He was the one, and he was the only one in the temple that was able to go into the Holy of Holies, and he would do it once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifices for sins for the people and for himself. Only the high priest, no other priest could do that. And then when the Sanhedrin would meet, it was the high priest who was kind of like the presiding, like the Supreme Court justice. He'd be, the, he'd be the lead guy that would make the final decisions about something. So we're to consider Christ Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Again, he's writing to believers. There in the beginning, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. That's Christians. That's believers. And so what does it mean, our confession? Well, what does confess mean? Confess, it literally means to agree or to say the same thing. When you and I come to faith in Christ Jesus and we confess our sins, what we're doing is we're agreeing with God, who's a holy God. His word tells us that there is none righteous. His word tells us that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And when we come to that point of confession, we say, Lord God, you're right. I agree. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. That's what confession is. And so all Christians, all to, and he says our confession, because all true believers, they ultimately say the same thing. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, we say the same thing. We confess the same thing when it comes to our faith in Christ Jesus for our salvation. Now, Christians have all kinds of other, you know, there's different denominations and different. But when it boils down to a true believer, we all have the same confession. We've all been saved by grace uh, uh, through faith in Christ Jesus, Christ alone. So he wants the writer or the readers to consider Christ Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then he says this. He says, uh, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was, all, uh, was also faithful in all his house. So at this point now, he's comparing Moses with Christ Jesus. Again, the Jewish people were tempted to return back to uh, Judaism. And Moses was their national hero. And we see it in Christ's words. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 3, Jesus is saying this. He says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. The scribes and the Pharisees, they sat in Moses' seat. They, they compared themselves to Moses. In John 5, verses 45 and 46, Jesus said, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And the, the Jewish guys are like, what? That, that was like very offensive that they would say that. 
In John 6.32, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then you recall later on in John chapter 9 that Jesus healed a man born blind. And the blind, the, that man was brought before the Sanhedrin, where the high priest would have been too. And they're saying, well, you know, who healed you? And on what, what authority did they heal you? And they're asking him all this stuff. And, and, and basically he says, you want to be a believer too in Jesus Christ? You know, and they get all upset. And in verse 28, they, they reviled him. And they said to him, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he came from. So you can tell in these interactions that Moses was highly venerated. And so this is a very key point for Jewish people. Now, for you and I, it's like, okay, well, we're, we're reading about Moses. But for a Jewish person, for those Hebrews, this was a big deal. This was like, this is a major thing. And so he's trying to remind them and to point out there's some comparisons of Christ to Moses, but there's also some great differences. And that's what we'll be looking at. So first, the comparison. Christ Jesus was faithful to him to, who appointed him as Moses was also faithful in all his house. Remember the definition for an apostle, someone who is sent. Well, Christ, or Moses was sent by the Father just as Christ Jesus was sent. And so in that sense, Moses is an apostle too. He was sent, he was a delegate, he was an ambassador for the Father. Remember that happened at the, at the burning bush in the wilderness when God said, I'm appointing you to go back to free my people, to set my people free from Egypt. And so Moses was an apostle and he was a faithful apostle to that calling just like Christ Jesus is faithful to his calling the apostle of our faith. You know, Moses actually even occasionally served as a priest. In fact, in Psalm 99, verse 6, it says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. So there was some times when Moses actually even stepped into the role as a priest, but never as the high priest. That was Aaron's job. But Moses did, at certain times, um, uh, operate in the role of a priest. What is a priest? Well, the Latin term for priest is pontifex. And it literally means a bridge builder. And that's what Christ Jesus is for us. He's the bridge between you, us, sinful man, and a holy God. He's the bridge between us and between God and between us and God and God and us. Well, Moses, we studied him in Exodus and Leviticus. He interceded for the people. He stepped in the gap for his people too. So in that sense, he was a priest as well, interceding, being a bridge people, a bridge builder, excuse me, on behalf of the children of Israel. So there are some comparisons here, but now we're going to look at the contrast, the differences. Again, Moses was faithful in his house, in all his house. What, what does he mean? Well, in the Bible, house has two different meanings. It can mean a structure, like we commonly think of a house as a structure. Uh, an example of that would be the temple. The temple is referred to as the house of God uh, or, you know, his, his literal dwelling place, his house, it could be. So it's a structure, but it's also a family. It's also a family. And in this case, it'd be like, for example, the people of God or the children of Israel or the church. They're, these are families. These, this is also what the uh, a Bible would term as a house. Now, what's interesting is when uh, David was king in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, that's passage of scripture, it actually uses both 
both meanings of the word house. It's kind of a play on, on, on the word there in that passage of scripture. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, he's, you know, he's, he's sitting there and he's looking around. He goes, man, I've got a beautiful place to dwell. I've got a beautiful house. And God is still in that Ark of the Covenant. He's still, he's, you know, not he's in that, but you know what I mean? He says, we've got the synagogue. We don't, we don't have a temple. And it was in his heart to build a temple, build a house for God. And so David says to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. And Nathan said, Man, you want to build a house for God? Go for it. And Nathan leaves the presence of David, and God speaks to him and says, uh, uh, Nathan, uh, go back. I've got, a, I've got something I want you to tell David. And so Nathan goes back. I'm very heavily paraphrasing. And Nathan gives this word from the Lord to, to David. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? And then what God ends up telling through Nathan the prophet to David, it says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And then he says, he'll build me a house. He will build me a house, I should say. Uh, and what he's talking about is Solomon, his son, would build the temple the house of God, another example of the house. But then the Lord says, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And he's not talking about a temple. He's talking about a family of kings. And he says, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. So we see both, both terms, house. David wanted to build God a house. And God says, your son, you're not going to do it. Your son's going to build me a house, a temple, but I'm going to build you a house, a family, a people of people of kings. The context here with Moses, what we're talking about here, is a people. And of course, specifically the children of Israel. And so Moses was faithful among the children of Israel. Verse 3, for this one, speaking of Christ, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who uh, built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of the things which could, would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house. And so he says there, Christ is worthy of more glory than Moses. Why? And he gives the illustration. A house is not greater than the builder of the house. You think about it. A piece of art or uh, a song that somebody wrote or performed or architecture, these beautiful buildings or these great magnificent bridges that we see that people have constructed or, or a craft that someone creates. Those things are never greater than the creative mind and the intelligence and the creativity of the person who created them. And that's what, the, that's what he's trying to get across. Every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. You see, Moses was faithful and has honor in his house. He's looked upon, he's venerated by the children of Israel. But he was faithful in his house as a servant. And here's the difference. Christ Jesus was faithful over his own house as a son. There's two things that are being communicated here. The first is the difference between faithfulness of a servant and the faithfulness as a son. And those are two different spheres of faithfulness. 
It's kind of like the difference between the faithfulness of an employee and the owner of a company. You know, an, an employee might be, uh, you know, might be faithful or stuff, and maybe they become unfaithful, and they do something that's, you know, terrible for the company or something, uh, or they can just like flake out and become unfaithful and quit. You know, and that happens all the time, right? Uh, people quit their companies. Um, it, it definitely has some impact, especially if you're a small company or that's a key person. It can it can have some impact, but that's a different sphere of faithfulness to the owner of the company. The owner who's making all the big decisions for the government, and they flake out, and they, they, they leave or whatever happens. That can impact the entire company. So there's a different sphere of faithfulness, and so there's a different sphere of faithfulness between a servant and a son. And the second thing is, Moses was a servant in his house. Christ Jesus is God and is over his house. You see, what, what he's trying to communicate here, Moses didn't create the house. He just served in it. Jesus Christ is the creator. We saw that in chapter 1 of Hebrews. Moses' knowledge about God was limited, but we read in Hebrews 1 verse 3 that Christ Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. So there are some differences, some significant differences. So we've looked at the comparison and the contrast between Christ and Moses, and now we get to what I would call a condition. And we see these in the book of Hebrews and in other places. I'll read verse 5 again. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken of afterward, verse 6, but Christ as a son over his own house, and here's the condition, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. I don't know about you, but I don't like those if verses in the Bible, but they're there. You know, there's, it's not just the writer of Hebrews that has if statements. Paul used them too. Uh, there's a lot of if statements in the New Testament. I'll give you a few of them. Romans 8 verse 9, Paul says this, but you were not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Later on in that same chapter, 8 verse 17, he says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. A couple if statements. Another one, Colossians 1, verses 21 and 23. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And here's the if. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Now, that if statements, and when we when I did an introduction to Hebrews, I said, you know, we're going to be coming across this, and you know, you got to understand something. He's writing to believers. Okay, that's the first thing. Now it's interesting. I was I was I read this one person's in view of this verse, and they basically said, well, you know, the Hebrew writer or the the writer of Hebrews is writing to a church of Hebrew, but he's not assuming everybody's a Christian. 
He's just, you know, he's, he's not making that assumption. And, you know, that's a good thing to do. When I'm, when I'm sharing the gospel or, I mean, I'm, I'm teaching whatever, I don't make an assumption that everybody in this room or everybody watching the live stream is born again. I, I can't make that assumption. So, I, you know, there's times when, I, when I'm spirit leads, I, I just need to share the gospel and, and, and give that opportunity. There are times when that happens. Um, and so it's a good thing to bear in mind, but I personally don't necessarily think that that's the case here. That's kind of interesting. Uh, I've had people come up to me before. They ask about the church, and they say, well, let me ask you this. Are you uh, once saved, always saved? And I'm like, oh, there's that question. You know, and, and it's like that's, that's the thing. That's whether they're going to come to our church or not is, do you believe in once saved, always saved? And uh, we had a, uh, we had a uh, uh, garage sale or a rummage sale here at the church. We've done it every once in a while in the summer times. And this one lady came to me the last time we did it and she was talking she's from the neighborhood somewhere she was talking about the church and stuff and and she didn't ask me that question but she said are you dispensationalist and I said I think so <laughs> and as soon as I got home that evening I had to google it <laughs> what is a dispensationalist and I'm reading I'm like oh. Okay, Whew. yeah, I guess we are. <laughs> or I guess, you know, I guess we are. Um, it's funny, people like to attach titles to things. And if you know me for any, I'm not into those titles and stuff. You can say, are you this, are you that, or you believe this, or yeah, I, I, I'll tell you what I believe the Bible says, and maybe, you know, if the shoe fits, <laughs> I guess I am, whatever it is. It's funny, uh, I had a family member once tell me that I'm an escapist because I believe in the rapture of the church. And I'm like, an escapist. Well, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, you just you just don't want to be around for the tribulation, you know. <laughs> I'm like, hmm. And then it brought to mind what Jesus said in Luke chapter 21. He said, "Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things." He's talking about the rapture that will come to pass. And I'm like, if that's yeah, I guess I am an escapist. The shoe fits. <laughs> So anyways, going back to that, you know, it is a key, it is a key issue and it's a concern to a lot of people, you know, can you lose your salvation? And this verse, depending on how you interpret it, it, it either says that or, or it doesn't say that. Listen, if your or my salvation hinges on our performance, <laughs> we're sunk. We are sunk, plain and simple, because I fail all the time and I'm sure you do too. Plus, it flies in the face of what the writer of Hebrews teaches. The, right, the whole point of Hebrews is teaching the centrality of faith in Christ Jesus alone and then the fact that he's the perfect sacrifice, the great high priest, and what he did is done once and for all. So what is the purpose then? The purpose, I think, of this verse is not to create doubt in a true believer, but... I think it's there to warn those who think they are believers and might not be. They, they come to church, they know all the words, they know all the lingo and everything, they, they grew up in a Christian family, for example, or whatever, uh, um, but they're not truly a believer. I think that's what this verse is for, it's to warn them and, and to warn those who are in danger of departing from the centrality of faith in Christ Jesus, which that was the danger that these Hebrews were, were coming to. Verses like this 
for an unbeliever, I kind of think about it as, as kind of like the sensation of pain. You know, if you, you get too close, you're in your kitchen and you get too close and you start you to put your hand on the stove and you, you just had to heat it up, some boiled some water on the stove or something. You get your hand close and also it's like, ah, that's hot. Uh, it's good that you burned a little bit on your hand because that kept you from like really burning, right? And so I think these word, these verses like this are there, they're for an unbeliever like, hey, you better pay attention. You don't want to burn, literally, right? You don't want to burn. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? So it's a good thing to, to, to consider. Am I really a born-again believer in Jesus Christ? Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 21 and 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Can you imagine that? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I have a hard time telling somebody, hey, as long as, as long as you've prayed the prayer, man, you're good to go. Once saved, always. I have a hard time saying that. I don't believe a person can lose their salvation, but I have a hard time telling that to somebody who's not at all walking with the Lord, someone who may not, maybe they weren't even sincere in their faith. I, I don't want to give them a false comfort. A.W. Tozer said this, if you're going to heaven, you'd better begin to live like it now. And if you're going to die like a Christian, you better live like a Christian now. There's nothing worse for a pastor than to have to go to a funeral and, and kind of try to say as many good words as you can about someone who's just, they're not a believer, you know, that they've died. I've been in those kind of situations, and, you know, it's tough when you know, it's like, there's no, zero fruit in their lives. They never profess, you know, faith in Christ, and, and you know, it's like, yeah, but they were baptized when they were a baby. I'm like, man, I don't know, you know. Um, so, anyways, these if verses, I, verses, I believe, are a wake-up call for an unbeliever and those like these Hebrews who are in danger of departing from the centrality of salvation through, fight, through Christ alone. Verses like this, that's for the unbeliever. For the believer, I don't believe these are here to create doubt, to make you like, oh, I hope I'm saved. You know, it's, um, it's to cause us to turn more fully to Christ. That's what I believe these verses are. Because in the end, the mark of the true believer will be if they held fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope for him to the end. It'll, it'll bear itself out in the end. What is the hope that we're talking about? A.W. Tozer also said this, hope is the drift and the direction of the whole Bible. It is the music of the whole Bible. It is the heartbeat, the pulse, the atmosphere of the whole Bible. Hope is an important thing. Um, this is me now. <laughs> Hope is important for us as believers. Listen, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1 verse 3 that you and I have been born again to a living hope. That word living, it's Zoe or Zoe. It's the strongest word that the Bible has for life. In fact, it's the same word that describes the God that we, you and I serve. 
He is the living God. And it's the exact same word. It's, it's, the, it's the strongest word that the Bible can use for life. And if you are truly born again, God has imparted into you his life, eternal life. And so we have this living hope within us. If you've ever put your hope in a person or in an election <laughs> or in a government or in anything other than God, you know that, you know, there's a good chance that they're going to let you down because human hope does that. It's unstable. You can't rely on it. But our hope in God, man, it's valid and it's firm. And so for you and I, the true believer in Jesus Christ, that hope that we've received, it comes through the new birth. It's a miracle of our new birth. And so what are we to do? Well, we're to hold fast. What does that mean? That means to walk closely. Walk closely. Cling to your Savior. Don't return to traditionalism, which is what the Hebrews were tempted to go to do. Don't return to rules and regulations or trying to, you know, your own righteousness or your, your own effort at uh, spirituality. Cling to Savior. Cling to Jesus. Keep Jesus Christ the, same, the main thing. You know, don't get off in the theological weeds. Sometimes people get off in these weird doctrines that come through, and it's like, just stay, just stay centered with Christ Jesus. Cling to your Savior. So we're to walk closely. We're also to walk confidently, knowing that Christ is in you. Peter, uh, Paul wrote this, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing that he has begun a good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That confidence, you know, I know the Lord's in me. I know I have a relationship with the Lord and, and going in there and, and not going, you know, wavering back and forth, you know, but having that confidence, walking confidently. And with the rejoicing of the hope, walk joyfully. Walk joyfully, man. Nothing can separate you and I from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. No matter what happens in your life, God still loves you. You may think, you know, I can't believe God's allowing this. He must hate me. You know, what did I do to him? You know, he's doing. God loves you. Cling to that. Have that as your anchor. Whatever you're going through, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And the other thing to be joyful about is, man, we're a blessed people. We are a blessed people. You know, I, I, sometimes people, you know, and I know some people's personalities, you know, you ask them, uh, is the cup half full or half empty? It's always half empty. You know, that's just their personality. It's always negative and stuff. So I know that there's a personal or personality aspect to that. But listen, if you would actually sit down and start thinking about all the different ways that God's blessed you, you'd be blown away. You can't, you, in fact, you'd, you'd, be, you'd be there forever counting all the blessings. We are a blessed people, so we should be joyful. Plus, we have a home in glory that outshines anything this world has to offer. You know, people are so concerned about the direction the world's going, and I don't like what's happening either, but guess what? This isn't my home. <laughs> it's it's, it's going to burn eventually anyways. I've got a home in glory that outshines the sun. Do Lord. <laughs> you guys know the song. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. J. Vernon McGee, I love this quote. He says, this is another reason it is difficult to tell if folks in our church are really saved. Some of them look and act like they've been weaned on a dill pickle. They're not rejoicing in Christ. <laughs> it's true. 
man, we need to be joyful. Joy, you know, we should be rejoicing in the Lord. So we're to walk closely, walk confidently, walk joyfully, and finally walk consistently. The Christian life, it's a marathon. It's not a 50-yard dash. And all people that start out really good and they, they just go off like the gun goes off, they're off in a bang, you know. Wow, all those great things that they're doing. It's a flash, you know, in their Christian life. And, and, but they don't last. They don't last. They start well, but they don't finish well. And we should start well and we should finish well because it's a marathon. Now, I'm not a runner. My, my boys ran uh, cross country. The only time I liked running was when someone bigger than me was chasing me and they looked like they were going to hurt me. And then, then I could run, you know, really, usually my brothers. <laughs> I could run for my brothers pretty big. I could run for them quite a bit. But one thing that I do or I've understood about running, especially marathon runners, you know, you can get to this place, it's called the wall. And you, you get to this point and it's like your body's ready to give out, you know, the chemicals in your body and everything. It's like you've just reached that point and you have to run past that. You have to run through that, go beyond that wall. You have to push through the pain. Those of you that are athletes, you know, you know all that's about, pushing through the pain and stuff. And, and sometimes that's what our, our Christian life is like. It's not everything's rosy. We have difficulties. We have trials and tribulations that happen, but we still know that God loves us. We still know that, you know, these things will soon pass. You know, our lives are just a breath compared to a vapor compared to eternity. And so we're to run the race, start and finish well. So we're to walk consistently. And now we get to the second portion of Hebrews chapter 3. We've considered Christ Jesus. We've looked at the comparison of Christ to Moses. We've looked at the differences between Christ and Moses. And now what the writer of Hebrews wants his readers and us to consider is the children of Israel. Again, don't just check them out, just look at them, but understand and learn from them. And the point that he's going to get across, this is basically sums up the rest of the chapter, don't be like the people Moses led. Don't be like them. So we have an example of their unfaithfulness in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation, said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You think about the children of Israel, you know, uh, how many miracles did God perform for the children of Israel during their time in the wilderness. And he didn't do it just once. He didn't do it just twice. He did it for 40 years. All these miracles, and we, could, we could sit down and you know, try to enumerate all of them. But there were so many. They saw God's power. They witnessed his holiness. They were recipients of his patience. And they experienced his provision for 40 years. They saw, but they didn't consider. They didn't understand or learn because when they came to the time where they were ready to enter the promised land and they were to go in, they're like, man, we're not going to go in. Man, we're going to get slaughtered. They, didn't, they, they, they saw all these things that God did, but they didn't understand. They didn't consider. 
and so that they saw but they did not consider in other words they didn't understand and learn and as a result God says they didn't know my ways it's interesting you know sometimes uh, you know people that you talk to you, you know maybe at a Bible study or whatever they know the answers they know the passages of scripture. They can tell you the theological this or that or stuff. And they have it all down in their heads, but yet they don't know God. They don't have that personal application in their own lives. It's a head knowledge, but it, that's all it is. Well, the children of Israel, they tested and tried him rather than trusting him. And they had so many examples of why they should have trusted him. And as a result, and you guys know the story, that entire generation except two people, they died in the wilderness. They weren't able to enter into the promised land. And so now we're giving an, given an exhortation against unfaithfulness. Verse 12, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. I want to get something clear to you. He's not talking about an occasional doubt. I'm not really sure that God's you know, going to do it, or, or fear. He's not, he's not talking about uh, an occasional doubt or fear, not even talking about weak faith. He's talking about unbelief. And you'll notice that he calls it an evil heart of unbelief. Why would it be an evil heart of unbelief? Well, William Newell said this, Unbelief is not ability to in, excuse me. Unbelief is not inability to understand, but an unwillingness to trust. It's the will, not the intelligence that is involved. And so many people, you know, they they say, well, I, I just don't know if I can believe that. You know, I, can, I don't know if I can believe the Bible and all this stuff. For I think probably for a lot of them, it's not an issue of believing or not. It's an issue of whether they're willing to submit to it or not to the truths of the scriptures. And so it's not an inability to understand, but it's an unwillingness to trust. And that's why the Bible calls it an evil heart of unbelief. And the result of a heart, an evil heart of unbelief, it's not departing from a faith. When I say that, you know, I'm leaving my faith, you know, and it's not that. You're leaving a person. You're departing from the living God. That's what, that's what he's saying here. If you guys go back, if you go back to Judaism, you go back to everything that was a picture of Christ Jesus, you're departing from God. And so this is serious stuff. And that's why the Bible calls it an evil heart of unbelief. The result of a heart of unbelief is departing from a person, the living God. But for you and I, who have a heart of faith, that's why these verses like this, it's to, it's to encourage us to draw closer to the Lord. Because the heart of faith is one that's in personal union with God. Man, we're clinging to Christ. We're spending time with him. We're, we're, we're always looking to him for our strength, for our righteousness. It's, it's all found in him. And so we're just, we're in communion with him. Verse 13, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That word today is mentioned three times, by the way. It's an important concept that the writer is trying to get across. You know, right now, we live in a pretty strange season, right? It's been a strange year, year and a half. Um, we're told to exhort one another daily. And uh, I'm just going to say this. I, I pray that you don't take this wrong, but, you know, virtual meetings, 
the live stream like we're doing right now, they're good. I'm glad we're doing them. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful. That's one of the blessings of living in our day and age that we can do this. But I don't think it quite meets, quite uh, 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 meets the mark, I should say. It misses the mark, that's what I was trying to say, of exhorting one another daily, of being involved with each other on a one-on-one -on -one basis with that personal interaction. And again, I, I get I get it that this is the season that we're in, and and uh, um, you know I'm not trying to shame anyone or guilt anyone. You know, you need to be here, um, but you know, one of the tactics of the enemy is a roaring lion. What does a roaring lion do? They lay in wait and they watch for the stragglers, the ones that are by themselves, and then they pounce on those. They don't pounce on the herd; they pounce on the stragglers. There's a concept. And, and, and it's a truth. And so I think, you know, again, today, it's mentioned three times. And I understand we're in, a, we're in a season right now. But you know what's kind of a dangerous thing? It's really easy to let a season turn into a habit. It's really easy. And so I guess it's just a warning I want to... Thus saith the Lord. I wanted to do one of those <laughs> Moses <laughs> right then and there. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, I'm a little bit hot right in there. Thanks. I'll just say this: Don't let today turn into yesterday. And and again, I, I'm I'm not trying to guilt anyone into anything, but um, and I know we're we're in a we're in this period that we're in right now. But I encourage you, especially those of you that are joining us on the live stream, um, pray through this verse and just ask the Lord to show you what his will is for you. Because I'll be honest with you, you need us and we need you. We need, we need each other. And, and the writer of Hebrews is going to be bringing that up in a couple other places too. But we need to encourage one another. And, and so I'll just, I'll just leave it at that, um, ask you to pray about that. And uh, verse 14, we'll move on here. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So not only are we the people of God, members of the same house, exhorting and encouraging each other, but we're also the house of God. There's a play on words, right? We're, we're, we're actually the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us. So we are literally a house of God. And there's two ways that our hearts can grow hardened. And one of the ways, one of those two ways is ignoring the Holy Spirit. Ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Hearing his still, small voice. You know, if you ignore the Spirit speaking to you, Eventually, his voice is going to grow quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter. And it's not because he's speaking quieter. It's because we become dull of hearing. Our hearts have gotten hardened. They, it's like when, you, you know, you, your hands get so calloused sometimes that you can't even feel the prick of a pin because it's so hard. It's, the sensitivity is gone. And that's what happens if we continue to ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so we're to see, we're to hear, 
in order to understand, not just, not just, you know, oh, you know, I felt that conviction or whatever. So ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's one way that our hearts can grow hardened. And the other is ignoring the Word of God, the Word of God. Familiarity with God's Word, it's good to be familiar with God's Word. It's good to have scripture memorized. It's good. It's good to be somebody you're at a Bible study and you're like, yeah, I, I think I can answer that question. You know, it's good to have that. But there's also a danger of familiarity where it gets to the point where it, you just become indifferent to it. You know, you get to like, for example, I announce I'm, I'm doing the book of Hebrews. You're like, oh, okay, well, I wonder if he's going to talk about this, this, and this. I mean, I know it all. It's ready. I know what he's going to talk about. I know what he's going to teach on, you know. And we can have that attitude that we just, we, we've already received. We know all there is to know. The Bible tells us that the Word of God is living and active. It's alive. It's active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And the, and, and the Holy Spirit uses it to communicate to you and I. And so I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you in your own time of reading the Bible, approach the Word of God like you've read it for the first time. Like you've never read that chapter or that book before. Don't go into it and go, no, I know what this is all going to be about. And, you know, go into it like, Lord, man, show me what you want to show me out of this passage of Scripture. And go in there with a fresh mind. And the Lord God will do that. You know, as a pastor, um, you know, I, I've actually taught through the entire Bible once already. And some, chap some books I've taught several times now. Um, but I've actually made it all the way through the entire Bible. Uh, when, and, you know, and I, I have notes. But, you know, I never go back to them. I don't even know why I keep them. It's like, because I don't go back to them. And, you know, if you think about it, if I taught it enough times, there'd be a point where I don't even need, I don't even need to prepare I can just go back and I can compile my notes and I, it's all there. It's all true. It's not false. And I can just share it that way. But it wouldn't be alive. It, it'd be, it, I don't think you'd enjoy, you know, if you go, I heard that sermon last year. <laughs> We're out of here. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not being fed. It's not speaking to me in my situation where I'm at right now. That's why it's so important to approach the Word of God for the, like you're reading it for the first time. And so how do we do that? Well, respond in obedience. Don't just read with an intellectual understanding. It's good to have an intellectual understanding of the word, but that's not the same as applying it to yourself. Sometimes we read it and go, man, I wish that person would, man, this is speaking about that person. Yeah, oh man, they, I wish they, I'm gonna send them this verse because <laughs> I really want them to see this. You know, sometimes when we read, we always think about somebody else. But the important thing, if you really wanna grow, Apply it to yourselves. Lord, what are, you, what are you telling me in this word? And then not only apl uh, applying it to yourself, but then finally obeying it. Because the Bible says we can deceive ourselves if we read the word, but we don't apply it. We don't, we don't obey what it, what it says. We think we're growing. You know, you could be in a, in a church that's a great church that teaches the word just awesome, and you're, you're just learning new things every, every day that you come or every Sunday, whatever. Man, it's just awesome. That doesn't mean you're growing. You could, be, you could be at a church like this one where the pastor is kind of mediocre. You could go and, 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 and get mediocre messages, but if you're applying what the Word is telling you, what the Spirit's speaking to you, you're going to grow. It doesn't matter what church you're in. You're going to grow. And so that's so important for us. Verse 16, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? 
Now with whom was he angry with forty years? Was it not those with those who sinned, whose corpse fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but those who did not obey? See, we, so we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. So the children of Israel in the wilderness, they didn't believe God's word. They didn't obey God's word. And as a result, they didn't enter into his rest. And next week, chapter 4, that's going to be what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be talking about what that rest is and, and, and what it meant for the children of Israel. And what does it mean for you and I? Because there is an application, a definite application for us as well. And so that's kind of a teaser for next week. Um, I'll have the worship team come on up. And, uh, and then let's close with prayer and, and respond in our hearts and worship to the Lord this last song.